0: Who is my neighbor? That was a question that Jesus was asked one day by a lawyer, a lawyer who was trying to justify himself, trying to make himself feel better about the people that he liked and the people that he didn't. But how would you answer that question? When I ask you, who is my neighbor, what, what immediately comes to mind? Do you, think about, do you think about the people that live right next door to you? Do you think about associates or close friends or people you get along with or people that act like you or believe like you? or think like you how would you respond to the question of who your neighbor is when jesus was asked the question he gave an answer that was completely unexpected in fact he expanded the definition of what a neighbor is completely today i'm standing in the nashville farmers market and the sights and the sounds and the smells remind me that nashville is an increasingly diverse area that the area of the country where we live is increasingly diverse, with people moving from all over to live here. And as people move into our area, and as we encounter people around us, we're going to realize that there are people here that don't think like we do, that don't act like we do, that sights and the smells here represent cultures that are sometimes very different than ours. Some people have a hatred or dislike for what we believe. And yet Jesus said when he answered the water, In a parable that we will talk about today, that every one of those people is our neighbor. So who is your neighbor? Who is it in your life that you have a hard time loving? Who is it in your life that maybe thinks differently or acts differently or or believes differently than you? Then you have a hard time treating as a neighbor. What barriers have you put into your life that prevent you from treating people like Jesus called us to? My guess is that everyone in this room has heard of the Good Samaritan, but many of you may not have heard of someone called the Subway Samaritan. It was January 2nd, 2007, and it started as an ordinary day for a guy named Cameron holopeter He was a 20-year-old film student, and he was making his way into the subway of New York City. He was a Harvard student that was going about his business for the day. As he got into the subway station and got towards the platform where he would board the train, suddenly something happened and a violent seizure took over his body. He stumbled to the ground, stumbled to get back up and leaned on the partition that was preventing people from going over onto the tracks. As he stood back up, the seizure continued and he began to stumble along the edge of the platform and eventually he tumbled into the railway bed, just as the rumble of an oncoming subway train could be heard. Now, what would you do in that moment? Well, we don't have video of the incident. Nobody had their, it was 2007, cell phones weren't everywhere yet, filming but we're told by eyewitnesses that most people in the crowd that day began to kind of move back or turn their faces or grimaced as the thought of what was about to happen but one man didn't 50-year-old construction worker by the name of Wesley Altree was getting ready to board the train with his two young daughters and as he saw the man tumble over, he said to the lady that was standing there, a stranger, take care of my girlfriend. Don't let them come after me. And he jumped over the rail while you could hear the train coming. He reached down to pick up the man that had fallen. And as he reached down to pick him up, he realized he didn't have time to get him out. And so Wesley did the only thing he knew to do. He threw his body over the man And held him down in a drainage ditch. And forcibly held him where he wouldn't move. The guy that was driving applied the brake, but not before two cars passed over the two men. Both men survived. Wesley Altry, when he got up, saw that the cars were close enough that there was grease on his cap on the back. And when he was asked why he did it, he said, I can't imagine why someone wouldn't. Now here's what's interesting to me. It's a fascinating story. It's a great story. He was actually recognized at the State of the Union in 2007 for those heroics. But when the media dubbed who he was, they had all these, you know how they have to come up with names for people, right? He was the Subway Superman, the hero of Harlem. But the one that stuck the most was the Subway Samaritan. Isn't it crazy how a story from the Bible that we all know has become such common vernacular in our world today? In fact, we're going to read today what is perhaps the most well-known parable, if not story, in the entire Bible. We're going to talk about, out of. you can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to talk about the story of the Good Samaritan. And here's what I want to tell you. The danger when we begin a service and we talk about a story that is so familiar to us is that we will think in our minds, oh, I know that, I've been, I've been down that road, I know what's going to happen here, and I'm not going to have, let me just tell you right from the beginning, I'm not going to have any brand new insight that hasn't been around for 2,000 years on this story. And yet, my prayer is, that this story will be fresh and new and different for you today than it's ever been, even if you've heard it many times before. Even if you're not a student of the Bible, most people are familiar with the concept of the Good Samaritan, somebody that comes and helps someone in need. And we're going to dive down deep into that because it's centered in the midst of this series of messages that we're calling Neighborhood Watch. And the point of this series of messages is to get us to think differently about what our neighborhood is and who our neighbors might be. And this is a great story because literally Jesus is asking this story before he gives the parable, who is my neighbor? And as we talked about last week, the foundational aspect of understanding what we're talking about over the next several weeks, and if you weren't here last week and you weren't able to, to be a part of our services, I would encourage you to go online, go to our website and you can click on there and watch it because it's foundational for the entire series, is that every human being ever created on the face of the earth is created with the image of God within them, with the dignity that comes from that. That is something that means that we are required as followers of Jesus to treat every individual as if the dignity of God is within them because they were created in the image of God. And so today we're going to continue to kind of flesh that out. That towards the end of the day, we're going to begin to talk a little more pragmatically, a little more practically. And over the next two weeks, I just want to tell you, we're going to be real practical in our messages. So I want to encourage you to be here the next two weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about a domain that we don't normally talk about with this, but we're going to talk about it next week. And then the last week, we're going to bring it all together. But the ideas behind it is Jesus laying a foundation in the book of Luke for our understanding of who it is we're responsible for. And as we enter into this passage in chapter 10, we must understand where it comes in the whole narrative of the book of Luke. And there's an important turning point that comes just a chapter before it. And in chapter 9, verse 51, it tells us that Jesus, when the days were coming close for him to be taken up, he determined in his mind, or when, uh, I think the NIV translated it, he set his face towards Jerusalem. He turned his attention towards Jerusalem. Let me ask you, I know you didn't come ready for a pop quiz, but this is an easy one. What was going to happen to him in Jerusalem? What was going to happen in Jerusalem? Crucifixion, right? Crucifixion, resurrection, that whole week is coming. And the point of Luke chapter 9 is what you read following this is Jesus zeroing in and focusing on the most important issues that are coming. And so when we get to chapter 10, starting in verse 25, we know Jesus is in the end game. He's in the end run to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 25, that an expert in the law stood up to test him. Now just a quick understanding, if you have an older translation or you have even a new modern translation, some of them say this, they will use the word lawyer there. I like the way the Christian Standard Bible uses expert in the law because when you and I hear lawyer, we don't think religious, amen? Amen. I have a lawyer brother, so I can say those kind of things, right? Y'all know there are lawyer jokes out there, right? I'm not going to tell any of them, but they're out there, right? And so we hear there was a lawyer that stood up, i well, what's a lawyer doing there? But that's not what is intended here. This is an expert in the law. What kind of law? Not the domestic code, not the cultural law. What kind of law is this man an expert in? The Jewish law, right? The Old Testament. This is an expert in every facet of the law. Most people think that he was a part of a group called the scribes. Now, some of you that are Bible students or you grew up in the church, you hear the phrase for scribes and Pharisees and they kind of just get thrown together. The scribes were um, real What they were literally were the people that would copy down the word of God, that would help interpret the word of God, that would have to know every nuance of the word of God. And so this man is an expert in the law. My guess is he was the duly elected by the other scribes and experts one to go challenge Jesus at this moment because Jesus was causing a stir. And when it says there that an expert of the law stood up to test him, it means they're trying to trick him. They're trying to get him to say something that will give them reason to arrest him or discredit him or tell the crowd, "See, you're following a false hope, a false messiah. And he says to him, teacher, what must I do to inherit internal life? Now, we're going to talk at the end of the sermon, so just kind of file this away for a minute. While that is a question that doesn't make sense in the way that it's even phrased, But Jesus chose at this point not to tell him about the foolishness of the question he just asked. He simply turns the tables on the man. Jesus recognizes this is a hostile question. A question that is intended to trick him, that is intended to test him, that is intended to catch him. And so he turns it around on him. Remember, this man is what? He's an expert in the law. So Jesus says, well, you tell me. You're the expert. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Another way to understand that word read there is how do you interpret it? How do you understand it? How do you catch it? When you, he basically looks at him and he says, like, you're the one that's the expert. Well, what do you think? Jesus used this strategy again and again where he asked, or he was asked a question he would answer with a question when you're the one asking the initial question, that can be frustrating, amen? Jesus is turning the conversation in the way that he wants to. And so he says to the man, you are the one that's the expert. You're the one that has all the answers here. You're the one that's coming to trick me. Why don't you tell me what you think it says? And so what's interesting is, he answers in a way that Jesus would answer when another man came and asked how to inherit eternal life. He answered, This is the scribe, the expert in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now here's what's interesting is that we don't know for sure. We, we think that there was some Jewish thought that was beginning to put these two, from, these two commandments from the Old Testament together. But we know that the Old Testament scholars, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, had not said this is the entire essence of what it means to be a follower of God. is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The first part was from the Shema, which was what they said all day. They told their kids every morning, every afternoon, every night that some of the Pharisees would wear it on their wrists. They would put it on their heads. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus looks at the man. Because Jesus had begun to teach this and say that this is the essence of following God. And that the love of God and man is an adequate summary of the entire Old Testament. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're right. Good job. Go do that and you will live. And then it gives us this little tag phrase. But wanting to justify himself. Wanting to make himself feel righteous, wanting to make himself feel good, wanting to make sure Jesus understood how good he was, and to make sure he got the law right. Now, we're not real sure, just to be honest, if the skepticism that came in the first question is carried into the second we're not sure because the scripture doesn't tell us if this was his plan all along that he expected Jesus to answer the same way the, the expert in the law answered. And then he was going to turn this question around him and say, see, because the people that were against Jesus were most concerned about one particular aspect of his ministry that when you look at what the Pharisees were mad about, when you look at what the scribes were mad about, when you look at what the Jewish establishment was mad about with Jesus' ministry, there was one thing that they were furious about. And they would throw it at him as an accusation. This man eats with sinners and tax collectors. He associates with people he should not be associating with. Because to a Jewish person, this guy already had an answer for who his neighbor was in his mind. And he thought he had Old Testament justification for this. In his mind, a neighbor was a Jewish person who was following all the religious laws and living his life in the way that he was supposed to. In other words, his neighbor was a man just like him. He thought, my neighbor, that's simple. My neighbor is people that look like me, talk like me, walk like me, act like me, believe like me, go to where I go, worship like I worship, worship using the same songs that I worship, worship using the same Bible that I worship. That is my neighbor. And if somebody is a sinner, that was a Jewish person not following the law of God, or worse, a traitor like a tax collector, that's not my neighbor. And that doesn't even mention people that are outside of the Jewish nation. His definition of neighbor was very specific. It was very tribal. It was just them. Jesus, as he often did, answered his question not with an answer, but with a story. Verse 30. Jesus took up or answered the question and said, A man. Was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, just a couple of notes about this story. This is a parable, so it's not a true story, but it rang with truth for the people there. They would have understood this particular path in particular. It was a very dangerous path. In fact, just so you understand, Jerusalem. Everybody talks about going down from Jerusalem or going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was 2,600 feet above sea level. It is 2,600 feet above sea level. Where the town of Jericho was located is 825 feet below sea level. And so when you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you are descending 3,400 feet, well over half a mile in descent now let me just ask you a quick question all right do you think if you're going 3,400 feet in elevation in a few miles that is flat ground or hilly ground what do you think that's hilly right that's rocky that's that is up and down and so to get there, you had to go down the side of cliffs and off plateaus. And it was all these crooks and crevices and going back and meandering back and forth. We take our trip to Denver this summer. And last couple of summers, we've, uh, the group that has gone has ascended a couple of mountains. Now, we've done it in cars. So we haven't climbed the mountains. All right. But last year, I got the privilege of driving uh, as far as we could go up Pikes Peak before the thunder snow Um, apocalyptic storm descended upon Pike's Peak, all right? And do you know how we got up that mountain? We did not get in a car and go straight up, right? It was driving a 15-passenger van like this. My uh, co-pilot was Kathy Decker. It was beautiful up there. And every couple of seconds, Kathy would say, oh, look at that. Don't you look, Lyle. Man, look at that. Look, Quit looking. Uh, people in my van. Am I exaggerating there, Julie Butcher? Am I exaggerating? No exaggeration there. He was full on screaming at me. All right. So she was concerned for the safety of her. All right. And so, so that's how you go up and down mountains, right? When we got to the point where they said, hey... You can't go any further. And then the, a park ranger comes in and says, if you're going down the mountain, you got to go now. Like, we went down again. And so as they're going down Jeruz- from Jerusalem to Jericho, there were all these little crooks and crevices and places where bandits would hide out. It was considered a very dangerous place. And as they would hide out, sometimes people would jump them Again, this is a parable. It's not a true story. But it would have rang true for these people. They would have thought, yes, like I can probably imagine where that would be. Now, there are a couple of little points in there that are interesting, all right? Um, it, it talks about what happened to him, that he is, the robbers strip him. That means they took everything they had, including clothes, but everything. They beat him up. And fled, leaving him half dead. Now that's always interesting to me because it's hard to be half dead. Can I get an amen? You either are or you're not. Now there's some people that said I've experienced that. Let me tell you about it. But you usually that's a word: you are or you're not. All right. And so they leave him there like that. Verse 31 a priest happened to be. Now, this isn't like coincidentally. This is like there was a purpose behind it. Most people that are reading this think that when the audience heard it, that's we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the audience. When they heard it, they would imagine this is a priest. A lot of priests lived in Jericho that didn't live in Jerusalem. And so this is a priest that has served his function in the temple. Priests were the ones that facilitated the sacrifices, that did the things that helped people worship. They were the ones that led worship. So you can think like a preacher here. This was a priest that he had finished service in the temple for for a week or two weeks, whatever his service was, and he was going home. was what people there would have imagined. So this is a man that has been literally in the presence of God, in the temple of God, for the last few days. This is like summer camp, youth time, high that he's on. And as he's coming down the mountain, as he's coming down, he sees, priest happened to be going down the road and we saw him he passed by on the other side doesn't give us any idea that he even thought about it that he even concerned himself with it it was just like got to get over on the other side of the road Now, there are some people that will excuse what the priest did here because that in their day and time that he would have been unclean if he would have gone over and the man had been dead and he had touched a dead body, although there are other parts of the Jewish law that would have allowed that to see if he was able to give assistance. The point is the priest had no desire to in any way help this man. It's in the same way a Levite. Now, a Levite was somebody that assisted in getting things set up for the worship. It's the same scenario, God leaving Jerusalem, probably the temple where he had been serving, where he had been getting set up. He had been right in the presence of God, according to Jewish people. He had been there that whole time. And when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So I'm not going to spoil anything here. You all know what's going to happen next. But let me tell you what they thought was going to happen next. Because in Jewish understanding, there were often these stories where they would talk about a priest, a Levite, and the people. A priest, a Levite, and the people of God. And there were these stories sometimes where the priest wouldn't do something he was supposed to, the Levite wouldn't do something he was supposed to, and the people would. It was almost like an anti-clergy message, like when our leadership fails us, the people of God must step up and do what should be done. And so most people in that audience that day were expecting them to say, and a normal Jewish person was walking by next. They expected the priest, in fact, when he said the priest, there probably would have been someone, I mean, that's like one of those old jokes, a a priest, a rabbi, right, walking, you you know those jokes, right? OK, some of you don't. That's all right. Don't don't know. them. all right. They're good. They're good not to know. But uh, they would have been like, oh, yeah, priest. And then we go, you know, what's next to Levi. Yeah, there's a the Levi. Jesus called the Levi. You know, what's next to people. And instead, he doesn't talk about the people, does he? He says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. Now before we get into why that's so important, let me just say something real quickly about the original phrasing of this. In our language, we always, almost always put subject predicate, right? The one doing the action and the one that is, the action that is occurring, right? We set up our sentences the same way. When you talk, when I talk, that's how we do it. In their writing, they would move the word order around and put whatever they wanted first to be emphasized. And the first word is... And this sentence is Samaritan. Now that's a big deal. What's interesting is that we call this parable the good Samaritan. This morning, um, actually, just kind of out of the blue, one of my professors from Union, one of my favorite professors from Union that taught me lots of my New Testament class, taught me three years of Greek, just out of the blue sent me a message on Facebook Messenger and said, Hey, man, how are you doing? What are you preaching on today? I want to pray for you. And I said, Good man, good to contact you. Um, I'll be preaching on the Good Samaritan. And he he wrote, Awesome, I'll be praying. He said, Just remember, nobody would have ever said Good Samaritan back then. They hated the Samaritans. Hated they hated them because in 722, when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel back in the Old Testament, the Samaritans were scattered. Samaritans were scattered. The Jewish people there, the people that were supposed to be living with God were scattered. And the rest of them that stayed intermarried with other people and diluted the religion of the Jewish people. When Alexander the Great came in with his Greek empire and destroyed them and marched through, they intermarried with the Greeks. And so the Jewish people saw them as people that were against their faith. In fact, there's a story at the end of the Old Testament where they come back to rebuild the temple. You remember when that? Nezarin, Nehemiah, and all of them are rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple. There's a story where the Samaritans say, hey, we can help, and the Jews say, no. And so then they try to stop it and oppose them. We have no sense of how much hatred the Jewish people had for the Samaritans when Jesus is teaching. There have been people in modern times that have tried to rewrite this story in a more modern context. For instance, early in the last century, a man by the name of Clarence Jordan wrote something called the Cotton Patch Gospel and when he told this story, he made it set in Jim Crow era south, segregated south, And he talked about the Good Samaritan being a black man helping a white business owner. There have been people that have written it in modern Jewish terms, and the Good Samaritan is the good Palestinian. There are people that have written it for the modern Christian living in America after 9-11, and they have called it the good Muslim. Now, I haven't seen this written, but it would be similar to what we've seen over the last week. Someone writing this to the Democratic members of this country that are staunchly Democratic and calling it the good Trump. Or somebody writing it to the Republican representatives that are staunchly Republicans and calling it the good Pelosi. You think, well, surely it hadn't gotten that bad back in the Samaritan. Listen to what they wrote about the Samaritans. These are from religious leaders, rabbis. Rabbi said, Let no man eat bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. Now remember, what was the most heinous thing a Jewish person could eat? Pork. Or listen to this Jewish prayer that kids sometimes would say given to them by their religious leaders. Do not remember. This is praying to the Lord. Hey, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans at the resurrection. That's hatred, right? And I don't use that word lightly. And so when Jesus looks at them and says, and a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, the Jewish people would have said, well, this is not going like we thought about. That guy's going to kick him while he's down. There's no way, no way this guy's going to help him. But Jesus shows he doesn't only help, he helps extravagantly. Samaritan on his journey came up to him and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and banjoes his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. By the way, in their day and time, those were medicinal things. Olive oil would have been used to, to, to treat pain is what they thought. Wine, they thought would, would, by pouring it on would help to, to cause it not to spread infection or to get worse. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So look at the sacrifices this man makes. Materialistically, he, he he uses his own oil. He uses his own wine. He uses his own animal. He brings him to the end. He takes care of him. He doesn't just say, hey, man, hope you're better. Take care of that. Look, you're bandaged up. Hey, I'll get you to the next spot, and then we're gone. He takes care of him. And then when he leaves, he took out two denarii, which would have been somewhere around two full days of pay. Most people think that that would have paid in an end of that time around two months of stay. And says to the innkeeper, take care of him. And when I come back, if he owes more. Now that tells you how bad of shape this guy was in. If it takes three months, when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Now again, this isn't a real story, but it's lifelike for them. And so as the shock of the fact that he didn't say people, but he had Samaritan. And not just that he said some other nation, but he said their most Hated enemies. As that's washing over them, verse 36, Jesus looks at the expert in the law and says, Which of these three men, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Do you notice how Jesus changes the question? Like the question that's asked at the beginning is, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus changes it to, Who was a neighbor? Who was a neighbor to the man? Verse 37, the expert in the law cannot even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. And Jesus told him, go and do the same. At the end of it, here's what Jesus is saying, all right? Because he talks about, remember, this goes back to that initial question. What's the, what, what's the, what are we supposed to do to get eternal life? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, everything you got, love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. And the implication there is you can't love your neighbor until you love God and you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And he basically says you can tell your relationship with God about how well you love people that are different than you, that may not be willing to accept you, that may think and act and believe differently than you believe Jesus says you can't define neighbor you can only become a neighbor And so here's the question that I have, because we live in a world that is increasingly polarized in our own country, not to mention how we think about people outside this country, not to mention how we think about people that are struggling to get by or trying to get into this country. We live among a people that are polarized in how we feel about all kinds of stuff. And I'm not here again today to talk about all those aspects of that. What I'm asking is, how do you feel? How do you react? How do you help when it comes to people that are in need. And when you look at this entirety of this story, there are a couple of things here that helps us to understand why this is important and what it means for us when we think about neighborhood watch. And the first thing that I want you to see is actually in the question that the man asked, because it's a question that doesn't make sense when you really examine it. He asked Jesus at the very beginning What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now what's interesting about that is he got the last part of that right. We inherit eternal life. That's the phrase that the scripture uses. That's what God talks about. We inherit. But you can't do anything to be an inheritor. And if we could, we don't. You see, the underlying understanding of what Jesus is talking about with eternal life is this, that our sinful hearts keep us from loving God. That just left to our own devices, just left to us, we are not going to be people that naturally love God. And the first step and watching out for our neighbors, loving our neighbors, taking care of our neighbors, the first step is we have to first love God and accept Him and be a part of His family and do what He's called us to do. And we can't do that on our own. We can't do anything to inherit eternal life. And so the story is pointing forwards toward the fact that Christ, through Him, that God has transplanted our hearts. That through Christ, God gives us a heart transplant. He changes us. He resurrects us. He imbibes in us the Spirit of God, the life of God. And through Christ, God gives us that heart transplant that makes it possible to love and to care for Him. In fact, that's the third thing. That our new heart makes it possible to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength. With everything we have. And that's the first commandment that we have. To love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when that happens, and so our sinful hearts don't let us love God, God gives us a heart transplant when we become a follower of Him, we're saved by Him. And that makes it possible for us to love God. Here's the kicker, here's the thing at the end. That our new love for God is shown when we care for the person in the ditch. For the person in need. For the people to whom God has called us to love. In fact, if you want to test a pop quiz on how you're doing in your relationship with God, ask how you're doing in treating people that are different than you. Who believe differently differently. Than you, who act differently than you. Maybe even people that think and act and believe against you. Because that is the checkup of our heart. You know what's interesting here, and this happens quite a bit in Jesus' stories and what happens? We have no idea how this teacher of the law reacted, it just moves on. It just says, and then they were traveling. It just leaves it. And I think that part of the reason the Bible does that, some of the reason may be they don't know. The guy walked away, they don't know. I mean, when the, the rich young ruler comes and Jesus tells him to give up everything and follow him, remember it says, and he walked away sad. He didn't know. They may not know what happened to this teacher of the law, but here's what I also think sometimes this allows us. It allows us to be the one making the decision on that end that we are to see ourselves as the teacher of the law in this instance and ask, have we gone and done the same? I can think back to that story of a guy standing on the edge of a subway platform when he sees somebody that he doesn't know and has very little in common with. The young man that fell was a Harvard student from an affluent family. And he was white. And the man that jumped over the rail to help was a 50-year-old construction worker who was African-American. There was no context in which they had ever run in the same circles. They didn't know any way they had ever known each other. They had looked into it afterwards. There was no connection. And yet in that moment, he only knew he needed to jump over the rail and get in the ditch with the guy. My question is, will we expand our understanding of what a neighbor is to the definition that Jesus gave? Would you pray with me?